My name is Justin Gerridge, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm your host, Jason P. Woodbury, and I am jazzed to be with you once again as we kick off our 2024 season. I hope your holidays were pleasant and that your new year started off without any major incidents. And if you did have some major incidents, I hope you're hanging in regardless. This week on the show, we are joined, I'm so excited about this one, by Michael Shannon and Jason Narducci, who joined me to discuss their love of and tribute to REM's Murmur, which they are taking out on the road this February. You no doubt know Shannon from his movies and shows. Some of my favorites include Port of Call, New Orleans, the Werner Herzog Bad Lieutenant movie, Midnight Special, Shape of Water, and uh, so many more. In his essential read, Every Man for Himself and God Against All, Herzog actually called Shannon the most gifted actor of his generation, and I'm so thrilled to have him on. Along with Jason Narducci, who you have heard with Superchunk, the Bob Mould band, Split Single, and many other projects. Together, they've staged tributes to T-Rex, The Smiths, Lou Reed, and Neil Young, and I'm so glad to hang out with them as they turn their attention to REM, which we discuss a bunch, along with detours into topics like Lou Reed, Sunny Day Real Estate, and best of all, Michael shared a story about his run-in with Bob Dylan. If you dig transmissions and want to chip in so we can keep making it, head over to Aquarium Drunkard's Patreon. We rely on your support to pay contributors and keep bringing you independent music journalism, mixtapes, reviews, and podcasts like this one with Michael Shannon and Jason Narducci. We taped this one uh, with the camera off, but here's a behind-the-scenes note. Uh, Jason wanted to uh, begin with a disclaimer. Just so let it be known that my hair, my hair does actually look pretty pretty good today. I'm sh- I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does, and and I am sad to not see it. But I really appreciate the both of you taking the time to join <laughs> us on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having us. Oh, thanks for having yeah. us. Yeah, sorry to make you guys wait. No, it's yeah, okay. it's no problem. We were having a pleasant conversation about the impending cli- climate doom of Phoenix, Arizona, where I live. So. Oh my! <laughs> yeah, I was saying I, I would. I I wondered how he got through the summer. Did you just not go outside much? For the most part, I mean that's kind of always how it is. Uh, unfortunately, because even when you know it's like n- just normal hot, it's very hot here. But um, for the most right. yeah, for the most part, just stay inside. But I do work out at the YMCA, as you told me you were just at your local YMCA, so I can oh, yeah. you know. Get some physical activity inside, um, but right. yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird, uh, it's a weird place because it, especially because it stays so hot even at night now. Like it'll be a hundred through the entire evening, which is wild. Oh my god! Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, you know what can you do? Uh, you gotta live somewhere, and this is where I live for now. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yes. Well. Well, thank you guys for for taking the time. I, I'm so excited to talk about this this tour, this REM tour. Um, and I guess to start off, I would love to just ask how the two of you uh, first started playing music together. I think if I if I understand it correct, you connected through Robbie Folks. Is that right? Correct. Yes, I I met Jason. Uh, we played a gig at the the Hideout in Chicago which is a really cool little club. Um, yeah, we played for Robbie uh, a record he wanted to do called The Blue Mask uh, by Lou Reed. Mm-hmm. And he usually would sing. He he had a residency where he would play different other people's records and he would perform them live and, and he would usually sing them. But uh, for some odd reason, he got it in his head that he wanted me to sing. Uh, the blue mask, um, and so I said, and I, I I had never done that anything like that before. I mean, I had sung you know covers every now and then with the band I used to 
have uh, called Corporal, but I had never done an, an entire record from beginning to end like that. And um, and yeah, Jason was in that band. And was was Dog in that band too? No. Um, I think the first show that Dog did with us was The Smith, Queen is Dead. Oh, okay. Which is maybe a year or two later. Who else was in that band? Was it was Gerald in that band? No, it was Alex Hall on drums, uh, Grant Ty on guitar, Robbie on guitar, maybe Scott Stevenson on keyboards. Hmm. So many amazing Chicago musicians. I mean, it's really like what it, it's it's incredible. What were you yeah. playing, Jason? What in, what instrument were you on? Guitar. I was on bass. I was on bass for that one. Cool. Cool. And you've been, yeah. you're doing guitar for the REM shows? Yeah. Um, I'm a tour. I'm doing guitar and backing vocal. And uh, Nick McCree is on bass. Doug Julian on the other guitar. Nice. Nice. And John Worcester, I believe, on drums. John Worcester on drums. He is, uh, he has been on this podcast. So we'll refer to him as a friend of the pod. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We had I had completely on accident. I had him and Tom Sharpling back to back weeks, which was a really fun. Oh, that's funny. It was a fun. Yeah, usually it's together. Yeah. Usually it's together and that's usually how I'm used to hearing them, but it was great to have right. to have those two on. And yeah, that's so cool that you guys got together and The Blue Mask is a a great record. Um I think it's like I watched the the performance of Waves of Fear and that's such an incredible song and y'all did a really cool job on that one michael you mentioned you had done covers with your band but you'd never devoted a set to an entire album like that was that a daunting proposition when it was proposed to you or did it immediately sound like kind of something you might want to get on board with oh no it was daunting for sure i was a little perplexed i didn't understand i mean robbie's uh, such a great singer i didn't really understand why he wanted me to do it i didn't even know like I, we had a mutual. We have a mutual friend, this playwright uh, named Craig Wright. I'm assuming that's how he got my information. But um, yeah, the whole thing was a bit mystifying. But um, you know, I like most middle-aged white guys. I'm a huge fan of Lou Reed, um, so I, I uh, was honored uh, that he thought of me. But um, I, 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 yeah, it was, it was, it would have been a little less daunting had I been familiar with the record. I had never heard of that record in my life. I didn't even know it existed. Oh, wow. Yeah, me neither. So, oh, uh, really? I didn't either. Yeah. That's such a weird record. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> yeah. But I really, I, I, I love the process of doing this. Uh, it's kind of a, like a monastic devotion to a record where you just listen to it. Uh, over and over and over again. I guess for some people that sounds like hell, but I <laughs> I, I, I I love it. Like I'll I'll walk around and listen to a record like a hundred times without batting an eye because I I think it's just because I love music so much, and I uh, love hearing how a great mind of music like Lou Reed how he puts things together, you know how he comes up with these songs. Um, Cause that record has so many different songs on it. Like he has, he has so many different styles and, and really eccentric song structures that don't like exist anywhere else that I've heard, you know? And so that made it kind of tricky too, because it, it, it wasn't what you're, your mind was used to in terms of um, the the structure of the songs, so you really had to. It, it was hard. It was it was hard, but um, but it's it really is worth it if when you do it. Um, it's it's so exciting, and it was exciting because um, there's a song on there, "Heavenly Arms," where he's singing to a woman named Sylvia who I believe was his girlfriend and my daughter's name is Sylvia. And she was 
my older daughter's name, and she was at the concert, so I was able to be up there singing oh, her name. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, it was very sweet. Uh, uh, it's such a just such a beautiful song. Um, yeah, I highly recommend that album for anyone who hasn't. Heard yeah, it. I hope I hope anybody who is tuning into this and doesn't and doesn't know the Blue Mask does go down the rabbit hole with it. It's a great record. I th- I think it's one of the few that Robert Quine plays guitar on, if I remember right. Um, and I love I love him and Lou together. There's a live concert from around that era. Um, oh yes, God, that's that, a bonus there's, for and sure. I, I love it. It's like as the song as the the set finishes, you see him like backstage, and Lou says something about how he started to feel like he was levitating during one guitar solo or something. And I was like, I, I, I love that. I love that record. And and I love this thing you're talking about, about listening to one album over and over again, a sort of monastic approach to, to music. And obviously you guys are getting ready to go on this tour playing REM's Murmur. And I think Reckoning on One Night too. Um, but I wonder, you know, when you learn a song, when you really try to get to its essence, I think it can end up revealing really interesting things about it. And I wonder, did listening to Murmur front to back that way, did did anything pop out to you guys that you hadn't realized? What was your guys' relationship like with this record prior to this to this idea? When did you guys first get into to REM individually? It's it's funny hearing Mike talk about, um, it's not funny, it's interesting hearing Mike talk about that Lou Reed record. Um, because it made me also think about the Neil Young record, Zuma, that we did. And um, I, I'm another favorite I, of mine. Yeah, that, that, was, that was real special. Um, you know, there's so many facets to it that I enjoy. Number one, I feel like I'm, every time we do this, I'm taking a, a college course. You know, Mike's talking about listening to a record 100 times. You really, you, you study, you know, and it's, you have to get inside and just like with. A lot of records sometimes there are songs that don't grab you right away, but you still got to learn it, you know. And but I'm as as right. someone who's a huge fan of albums because that's how I grew up hearing rock is entire records. You put the needle down, you're not jumping around song by song. It's the whole side, at least probably the whole record. There's a pacing to that that is rarer to find these days. You know, there's like a settling in like a real like confidence in every track because it's maybe that time that it was made in it just wasn't as rushed of an existence you know um yeah and murmur has that in spades you know it's just this it's just so settled in and confident even though it's their first record um but I, I think um, just having done other interviews about this with Mike, I think we we both discovered the band with Document in '87, and um, and then mm. moved backwards. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, yeah. Document was the one that turned me onto the band. Yeah, when the one I love that song came out, you know, it was kind of that whiplash moment where you're like, yeah. "Oh my God, yeah. who's that?" Who are, those, yeah. who are those folks? Yeah, that's uh, that's unusual. I've never. And why heard does that he want to kill his girlfriend or boyfriend? Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> listening to the record a bunch back and forth uh, to get ready for this conversation. I didn't listen to it a hundred times, but I think I listened to it four or five. Um, and you're right; like, it's kind of shocking that it's their first record. It sounds so fully formed yeah. and. I know they were fans of like, you know, a band like Big Star and it kind of reminds me of that first Big Star record in a way where it's like clearly these guys it's a new group but they're coming from some place that's very defined, you know, already, which is kind of shocking for such a young band. Michael, when did you you said you said you got in around uh 87 or so document. Do you remember what you what you liked about the 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 group then? I mean, you know, it's one of those groups. It's like, you know, it's like the Beatles or something. It's like they're all they're all superheroes yeah. at what they do. You know, it's not like oh, I 
I like Stipe's voice or I like Buck's guitar or Mills or I mean it's like they're all they're all kind of at the apex of whatever you could possibly hope for out of the instrument they're yeah. playing. And um but they're also uh very um idiosyncratic to themselves, you know, they're they're unique to themselves. They they all have a very different personality. It's interesting when you think about it because it, it's it, it, it pre- presents as such a unified whole and yet if you look at them separately they're all very they're all very different people yeah. and it I've, I've noticed that like even in i've been fortunate enough to to meet them and they're very very different people um and yet still i believe i, I don't want to talk out of school but still very close to this day right you know there was no um acrimony or oh i'll never talk to you again you know throwing things around right. the room they just you know they kind of they they did it you know even bill berry god bless him he's like look I, I i can't do this anymore i don't want you to stop because i love the band but i just can't do it anymore and then i think eventually that kind of happened to to stipe too where it's just like it was just the world just wanted them so much and wanted so much from them. And they, they gave what they had to give and then, and then they needed to, to rest, you know, but, um, that's, it's, it's, it's that crazy thing that happens to these, these bands that find some, I don't know, some chord in the earth that just sets everybody a tizzy. Um, but um, I was thinking about what you were saying about the record. It, it's funny, too, because uh, with Murmur, it the, the, I noticed studying the record how the record very kind of almost imperceptibly kind of shifts, shape shifts. Um, when you go from side A to side B, particularly when you get to the end of the record, it, it starts out, it, it, I feel like Radio for Europe is a very open embrace. It's like, come on in, this is fun, come on in. And then by the end of it, you've got like 9-9 nine, nine and West of the Fields, which you're like really kind of, ominous and foreboding and and i feel like that's that's the dynamic of rem from the get-go it's like on the one hand it's very it's very warm music made by people that you know are very kind of empathetic people that aren't aren't too highfalutin or i mean don't get me wrong there's room for eccentricity always but they're, 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 you know, they're, they're Southern folks, you know, making, making, and yet on the other hand, there's this kind of, um, this darkness that they have access to, um, which is a very, it's a very startling dichotomy between this, this darkness and this warmth in their music that I think is very, um, fascinating and really it's what i definitely think is what drew me into it yeah that's beautifully stated and it is a strange it's kind of funny to think about a a group like rem um a a couple years ago i read a book about u2 i think it was called u2 at the end of the world and it's about their 90s era and there's a scene where the rem guys are hanging out with them and they're uh i think maybe they did some sort of mtv performance where you know, half of REM sat in with you two or, or some, something like that. And I was thinking about how, you know, when you talk about how the world embraced REM and how they were a genuinely huge pop band, like, a, like, a, you know, not just like, yeah, these guys are popular for a weird indie rock band, but like legitimately everybody in the world knows an REM song or two, you know? And 
when you think about how eccentric they are and how unique they are and how kind of weird they are, um, it, it, it's kind of like mind blowing to realize that, that it resonated with people the way that it did on such a massive level. It makes me wonder if we can still, you know, it doesn't, doesn't feel like that's the way it works so much for bands now. You know what I mean? Where uh, a genuinely eccentric or strange group can kind of bubble up and achieve, you know, massive mainstream success. But I mean, but I think it speaks to... Well, the- they talk about that 30-year cycle and things. Sure. How, like, the 80s were like the 50s. So... Sorry if you hear children in the background, by the way. I live in a building where oh, Jesus Christ. people entertain their children by, by taking them out in the hallway and letting them run around and scream. Because apparently their apartments aren't big enough, so the children have to go out in the hall and play with their toys. Anyway, I'm trying to get away from it. But to restate, so there's this 30-year cycle, right? So like the 50s are like the 80s or the 80s are like the 50s and everything's super squared up and you got you know reagan in there and and but there's there's a lot of kids particularly kids like teenagers are like this world that what i'm seeing on tv has like nothing to do with me like reagan has nothing to do with me and then there's all this stuff about oh we might have a nuclear war with russia tomorrow you you might not even like make it into your adulthood you know we'll we'll see um and that's disconcerting so that's like the perfect envelope to deliver a band like rem to the particularly to the young people because i know like when i was stumbling around listening to rem on my walkman i was like i had i didn't have the slightest idea like why I was here or what I was supposed to do or what was there any meaning to to anything? And, 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 and that's, I feel like that's embroidered into, into their music, particularly, you know, the, you know, the earlier stuff. Now they grew and they changed and, and evolved um, a lot. Uh, But if we're focused on records like, murmur and reckoning and fables of the reconstruction and even life's rich pageant i really felt like life's rich pageant really spoke to what i'm talking about you know songs like don't fall on me like you know it just feels like <laughs> the sky is going to fall on us you know that's that and that anxiety and that sense of like i i, I don't and so and if you take it up to nowadays I feel like, so the 30-year cycle, the next one would have been 2010, I suppose. Um, but it, uh, so maybe I'm breaking the rule here, but I, I, it's okay. I, I feel like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like young people are definitely experiencing that now, uh, that, that, that feeling um, with all that's going on in the world. So maybe, yeah. Uh, as much as I'm excited for, fans of the band from the olden days to get this opportunity to see the record live because let's face it that's probably not going to happen with the actual band um i'm also curious for the younger people to get to come in and experience the music too because i think it it might hit a chord with them because i agree i don't really see anybody and not that i'm on the the pulse of what's happening today but I don't see any bands really doing that right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I certainly don't mean to imply, of course, that there aren't great bands and even great popular bands. But I think about, I think I first heard R.E.M. I got introduced to him through the theme song of the Chris Elliott show, Get a Life, because I think they <laughs> stand. And <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, well, because... Yeah. What a song to get introduced. <laughs> no, I know. And it's, it's, I, when I think back on it, I remember that I liked it, you know, right away, but I was like a pretty young kid and I didn't have, you know, I didn't, I, I don't even, I don't even know if I was watching MTV. I don't think I was. So, but just to hear that, um, 
you think, oh, cool, this is like kind of a cool, quirky band or whatever. And then the darkness you were talking about, Michael, like once I actually started listening to REM and exploring the records, I realized that Stand was something of an outlier, you know? Um, but also, there's some darkness in that one too. Um, and, you know, when I. Sure, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, they have a wonderful sense of humor, are you? I don't, which I don't, I, yeah, I don't think I don't, that's, I don't know they get enough credit for that. No, I don't think that that comes into the, um, into the picture as much. And, you know, what's funny is that another REM project that was super meaningful for me when it came out was the Man on the Moon soundtrack. Um, and, and so my introduction to like, Andy Kaufman even, or more like my immersion in Andy Kaufman. I had seen Andy Kaufman on TV when I was younger, but um, I do think that there's a sense of humor with REM. And I remember I had a teacher in high school who was talking to me, sort of lecturing me about music. Um, he really liked Green Day. That was a, my, my high school civics teacher, which is kind of hilarious. Um, but we were talking about REM and he was talking about losing my religion and, and, told me that everybody gets that song wrong too because that's apparently like a southern expression for losing your temper you know which uh it's funny because there's even a humorous aspect to that despite how you know sort of uh, stark that song is so i do think there's a sense of humor the lyrics on on murmur they're elliptical it's a very strange record when you break it down lyrically what did you guys i mean you know what the lyrics are? I can't, yeah, I can't tell. <laughs> can you, can there you are tell some, us? Do you, I mean, do you... you can figure it out. <laughs> that's that's what I was going to say. I mean, there's so many lines that just are so, so strange and quizzical. So if you can make out the lyric, even if you can figure out what Stipe is saying, you have to wonder what it means. I mean, in 9.9, he even says, now what does that mean? And I feel like in some ways that sums up... <laughs> the the lyrical focus of the record but um did you guys find as you were sort of immersing yourself in the record did you have any moments where it was like oh i think i i think i get what this means on on some level or do you have to make up your own meaning in order to do this sort of project well yeah i think each song's different i mean you know, I, I recently, okay, this is a segue, but I recently did a play uh, called Waiting for Godot. And it's a play by Samuel Beckett that has flummoxed many a great intellect uh, <laughs> in terms of trying to figure out what it means. And I would say what I said about the play, I would also say about this record. Um, I would tell people when I was doing the play and they would ask me, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean? I'd say it's it's really not about what it means. It's about what it feels like. Right. And if you look at it from that point of view, it makes sense because you know all the feelings in the play, all the things that they the kind of nonsensical, absurd things that they're talking about that on the surface don't make any sense are very reminiscent of, for me anyway, like what it feels like to be alive. And, you know, again... You know, you take a lyric, like, talk about the passion, just that title, you know, it doesn't ostensibly really mean anything, but but I feel like it, it feels like something to everybody who hears it. Yeah. And it's very, it's, it's, yeah. it's not inscrutable yeah. when he says it. It's very plain spoken, and you can hear it, and I guarantee you it means something different to everybody who hears it. Yeah. They it 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 evokes something different for everyone who hears it. You know whether it you know evokes how you know passion will not be available because it's 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 always at arm's length. It's only something you can talk about, you know, or whatever. It can be it could be anything, but it but it but when you hear those words, it it like hits a gong somewhere in your heart or your head or something and it and it leads you somewhere and i feel like that's the biggest gift an artist can give is not to like state their case and say this is what i think this is what i believe and this is the story i want to tell i think there's something beyond that where you can create something where 
it in, 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 in instead of presenting itself, it, it it kind of lodges itself inside of you and takes you somewhere that you get to participate in, and that you get to at the end of the day you get to say what it is, what it means to you, and I think that's that's the kind of art that really excites me, and that's what's exciting me about the band is that it's not like and this this is not to poo poo any of this music i i love this music too but it's not like you know when billy joel sings piano man it's very clear you know it's about a piano man in a bar <laughs> singing for a bunch of drunk people yeah it's a beautiful song oh. and i love it i love hearing it every time it comes on but it 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 it, it has an end and when i say it has an end it's not just yeah. when the song's over it's like there's a boundary yeah. to the story there's no there's no boundary to this music like this music can take you anywhere you know it's it inspires you to to explore yourself which is i think a huge gift to give people Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. What you're saying really resonates with me because I, I know what you mean about like I love story songs, you know, uh, and I love songs that sort of like lay out a narrative that you can follow. But I think what makes REM such a unique group and makes them such a sort of a one of the reasons why they retain the power that they hold over listeners' imagination is that sense of mystery and that sense of question that's baked into the stuff, right? Like Michael Stipe isn't telling you what the song means. He's presenting you with a set of images or ideas or, you know, phrases that, uh, that sort of, uh, you, you have to, you have to find your way into it. And I think about how you guys, I mean, you've done a number of projects where you've covered full albums. So at this point, I'm sure you have something like, a method that you use to approach things to, to to get things started. When I was listening to Murmur and and thinking about what it would take to play it live or to bring uh, bring it to the stage, I found myself thinking I really love Don Dixon and Mitch Easter's production on the record. Uh, it's it's really interesting and it's also it doesn't really sound like a lot of records. There's kind of like a there's like a little bit of like a feeling of embodied space to it. I know that they dropped in sort of like um, found sound and and some sort of like altered recordings and things that kind of give it that 
weird feeling of like uh, a room that exists somewhere that you kind of wander into. But yeah. I wonder for you, for you guys, you know, um, what kind of conversations did you have about like, okay, so if we're going to do this record, it's important that we, you know, what kind of qualities were you sort of looking to maintain as you adapted this for the stage? Um, we're kind of a pop-up cover band, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like we, we pick a record and we find a venue and ask them if they'll have us. And if we're lucky to get a date, then after we figured out the record, I assemble musicians in Chicago and then we practice the night before the show and play the show. It's real. Holy crap. I would love to, I would love to say that this is like Mike and I sitting up for hours talking about, um, all not the stuff, case though. No. And, uh, but in our own time, we are, you know, when you spend sure. that much time with the music, you're getting inside. And I, of course, communicate with the musicians about, it's really important for me to hear this part. Can you take that? And I'll, I'll do this, that kind of stuff. And we'll do that a little bit in practice too. Mike has a real, he's really in tune with the feel and, you know, a number of times we've done this and Mike has said, I think, I think this needs to be slowed down just a little bit or sped up just a little bit, or how are we going to end this? You know, there's arrangement discussions and things like that, but it's, it's pretty, wouldn't you say, Mike, it's pretty by the seat of our pants. Yeah, I think the majority of the study or the work is done individually. I mean, I would, I would, I'd be curious to hear, Jason, like, isn't there, depending on what record we pick, does your mind, because you, you, you're, you're picking the, the band as, do you think, oh, this is better for such and so, or this person, or, you know? Absolutely. Do you, do you have a sense of that, or are you just like whoever's available, you know? Uh, well, it's of course that too, but it's absolutely the style of the record. You know, drummer, it's huge for drummer. It's huge for guitar players. If we need backing vocal, um, you know, we did earlier last year, well, almost exactly a year ago, we did the Modern Lovers first record. And that just sounds to me like a rough and tumble band. So I went young. I went with guys that are younger and just have a little bit more, I don't know, swagger or something. And I thought that worked great. And um, then when, yeah. we, when we did Zuma, I knew that there was, you know, going to be fucking guitar solos from the heavens <laughs> if we yeah. did it right. And so I picked two guitar players that can, you know, carry an audience for three minutes if need be. Uh, yeah. What do we do yeah. with Cortez, Mike? How long was that one? <laughs> I think we got up to twenty minutes. Yeah, that yeah. was. Oh, Kurt went nuts. Our <laughs> Kurt, our yeah, guitar player, he just went. I mean, it was but, incredible. But we, we played it the night before in practice, and I think it was kind of it was uh, there there wasn't. It's like everybody was looking for a guardrail, but right yeah. before the show, Mike said, "You know what." No rules on that song. Whatever, yeah. wherever it takes us, let's go. And so we ended up doing it twice as long as we'd ever played it. Um, and the That's crowd fantastic. You know, it's kind of feeding off the the heat from the crowd. You know, um, I think if people started snoozing or, or leaving the venue eighteen minutes <laughs> in, I'd been like, all right, and let's we'll wrap it up here. But um, yeah, I try to assemble. Yeah, them. Neil Young fans want a very long Cortez the Killer if they can get it. I'm sure. Yeah, we delivered them. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting with Murmur, you're right, because Murmur does have such a distinctive sound. And to play it live, you know, like when we were in, because we practiced at Jason's house and we were in the room and I was like, man, it's really hard to sound like this record. Like this record yeah. has special magic pixie dust all over it. And <laughs> I don't know how you sound like that and the dynamics are really interesting you know um and you, you kind of you know you kind of have to make your peace with that sometimes you know that it's it's not gonna sound just like the record and for god's sake i cannot sing exactly like michael stipe <laughs> i don't i don't think anybody yeah who, can. Who that's could. why he's michael stipe uh stipe yeah but um 
So you, you kind of have to make your peace with that. And then you get the sound check, you get up there. And uh, it was so exciting because our keyboard player, Vijay, he 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 got the the sample for the yeah. opening of Radio yeah. Free Europe. Oh, and cool. That, yeah. that was like, that was very, little victories like that, you know. Um, he has a bunch of them. He's got the, he's got the uh, pool table balls slowed down. He's got that sample. He's got the sample in gardening at night on the bridge. And yeah, it's pretty cool. Like we know we can't sound exactly like the records, but um, he does a nice job of giving little decorations that are like, Oh, I do. I do like that sound. That does feel like, you know, how the band did it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's that's, something about I mean, REM. Very, yeah, that's very moving to me when people show up, it's like, cause I realize, like, Oh, everyone is taking this as seriously as I am. And like wants wants it to be as cool as it can be, you know. And they and they're doing the little extra things. Um, they're not just saying, okay, so it's G seven and C, and yeah, I get it. You know, they they want they want extra credit, like everybody, you know, <clears throat> wants to get yeah, as close. That's that's great. And then can. any place maybe where you're not able to get it exactly like it is on the record, I'm sure that's where the spirit of the thing kicks in right and you're able to just sort of uh, just feel it in that moment or whatever if you're not able to replicate something directly necessarily well frankly like when we did the show at metro in chicago over the summer which kind of inspired this whole tour idea what really levitated the whole thing was like this rabid desire that the crowd had to hear this record it was like there were a lot of people that that were huge REM fans that had not gotten to see this uh, tour when it happened, and um, they were just so appreciative, even if it was just our kind of version of it, just to have that experience to be. And it was it was spooky because you know we were playing at the club in Chicago where REM played for the first time. It was probably on that stage that they played uh, on the Murmur tour, right, Jason? Because it was 40 years. It was, um, I think the first Metro show was R.E.M. on the Chronic Town tour, but they were playing the songs for Murmur, yeah. Oh, wow. <clears throat> well, that's right, because they toured Chronic yeah. Town. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's mind-blowing. So, yeah, so yeah. you've got that historical connection there, you know, crossing time. And then, obviously... You said the crowd was pretty rabid. You 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 really felt the energy in in the room. I mean, you know, we we've done these things, uh, like Jason said, uh, a few times, and initially, Jason was like, "Because there's two venues we'll play. We'll either play at Metro, which is rather large, or there's a lovely venue up in Evanston called Space. That's that's smaller and it's not as much of a." A room to fill you know you don't have to worry about that so much and so jason initially was like let's let's do space and i said no i think let's let's take a shot at metro let's see if joe who owns metro will, will take a shot on this and uh and and joe was like hell yeah because for the reasons we just mentioned uh because it was also metro's 40th anniversary first show being rem la di da di da and then, and then we we keep an eye on the numbers, you know, because it takes a lot to fill Metro. And I think we wound up being sold out pretty much, right? Very Jason? close. It was nine nine twenty five, and I think there was seventy five people on guest list, so it was like a thousand. And their cap is, you know, real close to that. But you know, I saw Joe just a couple of days ago. And he reminded me that we put those tickets on sale 30 days before the show. <laughs> wow. Which is, yeah. Oh, wow. Which is so late. So late. Yeah. So people had already bought tickets. For instance, I know that night Andrew Byrne and Nora O'Connor were playing up in Evanston. And so there were, there were like big shows that night that had been on sale for four months. And, you know, um, so the fact that we got to 925 with 30 days notice is nothing short of a very good indication of how badly people wanted to celebrate that that music. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and that's incredible. And then to have Mike Mills get into get into it with you guys to hop up there. I mean, I imagine that whatever you were feeling from the crowd when he got up there, it must have just like elevated. You know, I want did did you feel that pretty <laughs> pretty much right away? Well, m- neither Mike nor I saw. I didn't know he was there. <laughs> the the crowd was cheering, and I thought it was because I was singing so brilliantly. And and I was like, man, I'm crushing it. And then I'm like, wait a minute, something's fishy here. And then I, because I think it's because they were cheering and I wasn't doing anything. I'm like, they can't. I can't be that electrifying. And then I looked at my right, and Mike Mills was standing there. And I about like had an accident um, <laughs> because, okay. So this is what happened is like, he, we weren't sure he was going to make it, you know, cause he was on a flight and it had gotten delayed or something. And we were down in the green room, Jason being the captain of the whole scenario, we were doing ins and outs of songs. Sure. How's it start? How's it end? How's it next one does anybody need to change instruments does anybody need to tune up down whatever right and as we were doing that joe shanahan swings the door open and says i got a visitor for you and mike mills is standing there and we were all kind of in a state of shock yeah and then you want to tell the rest of it, Jason? oh well we yeah i mean he's he's so sweet and down to earth that he immediately you know reached out to each band member and shook their hands and introduced themselves. <laughs> you know, a couple of people were just like, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we all were, but it was really something for him to just be there, you know? Um, and immediately I told him and, you know, John Worcester and I have, uh, John has a much longer history with, with Mills than me, but we, we both known him for a while. And I told him, I was like, I brought, I brought my red P bass, which he, he likes my, my bass. And I was like, and Nick, our bassist, knows that this is if you show up, it's you are welcome at any time to jump up. And he was so sweet. He's like, you know, I, I know how hard you guys have worked on this. I'm not gonna step on any toes. And uh he's like, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe I'll I'll sing with you or something. He left it kind of wide open, but we were just like, Well, I think he's I think he's uh he's just here to enjoy the show with friends. And um and then sure enough, it, yeah, it was like near the end of Murmur. The crowd just erupts, and uh, same thing that happened with Mike. I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm really, this is going great. I didn't think, this, <laughs> I didn't think this was a part of the song that people would get this excited about. But sure, and then you look over, and and not only was he singing, but he was really into it, you know, and like animated, and um, and then he just kept coming up. So it just became this, it just became this party, you know, it just became this like surreal. We played, it was a long show and nobody left. Everybody's it was like three hours. Yeah. And yeah. I just being around town for the next, I think I didn't go on tour for like another three weeks or something, but just going to other shows and people coming up to me going that, that show, yeah, I'll never forget that, you know, like it meant so much to, to people in Chicago. And then I started getting emails, you know, I mean, one of the first emails I got was from my friends at first Avenue. They're like, any chance you want to bring that up here? And, um, Great American Music Hall, Sketchfest in San Francisco. It just started this kind of like, so I called Mike. I was like, you want to try this? We've never done this where we, we take the shows on the road. And uh, Mike seemed excited about it. And um, it's a lot of work to put together, but it's uh, so far it's, it's going well. I mean, yeah, back to the earlier thing about like when you were, shocked to hear that this is kind of a pop-up thing you know that we really just kind of pull it all together in 24 hours i mean we played one set actually where our rehearsal was the sound check oh, right yeah. that was yeah, a t-rex, t-rex show rehearsal. yeah um but uh i'm looking forward to spending more time with the songs and maybe like doing the songs not in a state of sheer terror but actually <laughs> i i don't want to say being comfortable but when you do a one-off like that you're really just a deer in the headlight you know you're just right right you're just you're just praying like please 
don't let me sound like total garbage, you know. Um, uh, but if if you can spend some time with it, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing maybe a, like I said, not comfortable, but maybe just not like having a panic attack would be. Yeah, fun. you'll get a chance. I mean, playing a string of shows, you might even manage to to get sick of a song or two. Uh, who knows? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh boy, I, I think. <laughs> I, I mean, Mike, it, but... you probably see this all the time with with performance things but like there's just nothing like doing the actual performance there's no better practice right the perform you can sit in a garage you know sit in a garage or a basement for weeks months even and practice stuff and it just doesn't compare to the actual thing and that's <laughs> something that is very exciting to me that this band is it's already a good band it's already a good show but like by the end of this thing i think we're just going to be firing on our cylinders and probably exhausted but also just you know a lot of adrenaline and um yeah so that'll be jason we you we, we mentioned a little bit earlier i think michael mentioned that it'll be interesting to see how younger people sort of take to this or or how it connects with people i was kind of looking over your semi-recent activities and you went on tour with sunny day real estate a little while ago right was that a year or two ago um, I started in August of 22 and I, I did some shows in 23 and I'm going to do some more this year. I was thinking about, you know, bands that, uh, mean a lot to a certain generation. Um, and, and when I think about, you know, sunny day real estate, they really are, uh, and they were for me a big a big uh, introduction to a whole kind of specific world. Um, I guess you could call them. I remember them being referred to as like proto emo or whatever. Uh, I don't know if anybody <laughs> likes those terms, probably not. But, um, but I wonder, did you, did you, did you come across younger folks at that, that show who had grown up listening to the records or, or did you encounter like any of those sort of like generational divides at, at while you were working with sunny day? Um, they, they have a, a massive young following. I would say it's more young people than people who heard the record, you know, diary when it came out. Yeah. And it's, I think if I understand what's happening, it's because of all these massive bands that I don't um, listen to, no offense, <laughs> um, who, who credit Sunny Day with influencing them, one being My Chemical Romance. And again, I, this is not a, a judgment or um, a negative, I don't want any negative connotation to this, but I, I don't hear Sunny Day Real Estate in My Chemical Romance's music, but they... They're huge fans, right. you know, and like, you know, Mike came to one of our Brooklyn Steel shows and I think two of the My Chemical Romance guys were right. Oh man, that show was fun. awesome. I was, I was really glad you were there. Um, but yeah, All I right. think two of the My Chemical Romance guys were just standing right, you know, 10 feet away from me. I, I think, I don't know what they look like, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but that, that they've, they struck a chord with this younger, I guess, like you say, you know, scene. And these bands just keep talking about Sunday Real Estate, Sunday Real Estate. And those four records, I think, are great. So it stands yeah. the test of time. And the those three guys in that band are at a point in their life where they're comfortable with their place in music and they're comfortable with each other. And they're just on a real, a really nice, it's a very nice moment for them. And I, I'm very happy. And it, you know, the fact that I occasionally get to jump in and, and uh, run a couple laps with them is, is, is a joy. Yeah. Michael, were you into to them? Were you into Sunny Day when they were uh, first around, or uh, did you just get into it a little bit more recently? You know, uh, kind of neither. Kind of halfway between when they were first around and now. It was it was just a blind buy. I was I think it was when I was living out in L.A. So it would have been the proverbial turn of the century. Um, I was at Amoeba one day and I saw this pink CD. It was just pink. 
I was like, huh. I, and I used to do that. I mean, cause I, I just love music and I love to find new music. And I think it was maybe on sale or something. I was like, Oh, I'll try this pink CD out. And I put it on. And I was like, Holy moly. Well, listen to these guys. I mean, I was a huge, I was already, you know, uh, like, like most sensible human beings. I was a huge uh, Nirvana fan. Um, and, and mud honey and, uh, uh screaming trees and things like that but sunny day real estate i was a little late on the uptake with them yeah there's a funny story about that i, I have that record on my phone uh, uh still uh, i listen to it all the time there's a funny story about that yeah. cover did i ever tell you this mike no they broke up during the recording of that record so that's why oh. a lot of the titles are just like numbers you know? yeah eight or whatever right, yeah. right. and the lyrics some lyrics are not done so like talk about stipe you know like jeremy just had yeah. doing dumb, we call them dummy lyrics sometimes when you're just making stuff up finish the lyrics so that's on the record and then they couldn't sub pop couldn't get a hold of anybody in the band to figure out what the artwork should be and the way that i heard it the way that i understand the story is that they someone finally got a hold of William, the drummer. And they're like, what, sh you know, what should this record look like? And he goes, I don't know, pink. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's all they needed. There you go. Wow. Sub Pop took it from there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we I had no idea. <laughs> That's, that's wild. That's wild. Well, I think about, you know, I think about a, a, a group, like Sunny Day Real Estate and and sort of the way that they influence so many bands. REM, of course, shares that as well. Just, you know, has influenced so many modern indie rock groups and singer-songwriters. Um, somebody else, of course, who is an influence on almost everybody who we talk to on this podcast is, of course, Bob Dylan. And, you know, before we wrap up and I, I let you guys go, Michael, I had to ask... I have to ask a little bit about the great Bob Dylan project that you were a part of when the trouble no more set came out, they, they made that concert film and you delivered these incredible sermons that I believe Lucy Santi wrote. Maybe, um, how did you get involved? Yes. How did you get involved with that project? Uh, it was, it was crazy. I mean, it was, it just fell out of the sky, man. I, I, <laughs> my manager, uh, Byron, he called me one day and he said, uh, he said, yeah, Bob Dylan's uh, manager uh, wants to talk to you. And, the, and I'm like, yeah, sure. So uh, I went to his office. It was just one of those situations. I've, I've had a few of these in my life where I'm just sitting across a desk or a table from somebody you just feel like you're getting it's like a prank yeah. or like like you're kidding right this is where's the camera they're about to say you're on candid camera oh, or whatever yeah 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 and um it was such uh, an amazing experience <laughs> uh, they were directed those uh, monologues by a wonderful woman named uh, Jen LeBeau who who kind of handles all of Dylan's, um, I don't know, I don't know if it's filmed material or like archival footage or something, but um, she's a, a lovely woman. And uh, it actually led to me getting to meet Bob Dylan. I was hoping you were going to tell uh, the story. Made it all worthwhile. Holy moly. What, I mean, what were those circumstances? Well, so I'm, I'm there in this church doing these monologues and Jen, the director and I are talking and I'm like, what are the odds of me actually meeting Bob Dylan? And she said, uh, slim to none, slim to none. <laughs> I doubt that will ever happen. Um, she said, even when he plays shows, he, and famous people come or people of note or whatever. He he never really wants to see them. And she says, by, you know, 
when they're when the audience is clapping after the encore and the band is still bowing or whatever, he's like already on the bus. He's gone. He just disappears. But he was playing uh, the Beacon. It was, I think it was the end of the never ending tour. It was around the holidays. I think it was around like Thanksgiving or something. <clears throat> and she hits me up and she says, look, I think, I think I might be able, I think I might be able to make it happen if you go to the show. <clears throat> so it was before the show. So I, I, I went there. Uh, with my wife Kate and uh and we sat in this room with like the crew for a long time uh, it was very surreal we were like sitting here watching tv with like electricians or something and backstage and then finally somebody knocks on the door you say okay you ready and we go up to the very very tippy top of the beacon the top dressing room and there's like a Chinese screen in there, in the dressing room. And you can tell there's like a mirror on the other side with lights and everything, but you just see a silhouette. And then around the, the corner of the screen comes Mr. Dillon. And I just, it was like I was meeting, you know, Jesus Christ or something. Although that would, he would probably hate to hear that because he he knows that jesus is more important but um that's what it felt like to me and i i immediately it was a situation where you're like be careful what you wish for because i had absolutely nothing to say to the man uh i i had nothing to say to him uh at all uh i i felt like i didn't belong there and that it it, it was all a horrible mistake and then i i started trying to make small talk with him i started talking to him about the village oddly I, I told him i said you know every time i walk down like mcdougall street i think about you like and there's nowhere else on earth where i go and i walk down the street and i think about a specific person or a person that i don't even know and i just am always curious about what was it like when he was here and, you know, walking down the street and walking around with his guitar and, you know, playing in the coffee house or whatever, and just so wishing that I could have seen that or whatever. And he just said, yeah, I don't really go over there much anymore. It's too expensive now. So expensive over there. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you know, You did the hitman. I'm like, oh, thank you. And I think he was talking about the Iceman. He called it the Hitman. I'm like, holy shit. Bob Dylan just told me he liked a movie I did. So that was cool. And then Mavis Staples showed up in the doorway because she was opening for him. That was that. And that was it. And then we went watched the concert and it was amazing. I have Jen, Jen LeBeau to think. Mike, didn't, yeah. the, uh, didn't the tour manager say to you right before you walked into the dressing room, this never happens? Yeah, <laughs> I kept getting told this this never happens. And I'm sure there are people like, probably like, you know, the president of Norway or something, you know, like really significant human beings. And um, I don't know why he decided. But I really love doing those sermons. I I don't know. I don't know if many people. Have, I'm sorry. I'm just saying I, you have to get the CD box set and then it's in there. Right. Yeah. And I actually saw uh, I saw a, a, a presentation, a theatrical presentation of it. Um, and it was just mind blowing. I love that. I love that era of Dylan. And I love I love that that project. And um, thank you both for taking the time. And I'm really looking forward to hearing how these REM shows go and see where you guys go next. And it really means a lot to have you both here on Transmissions. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Thank you, Jason. Oh, our pleasure. Thanks for having us. 
Michael Shannon and Jason Narducci here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Thanks so much for spending time with us here on the podcast. We know you have a lot of listening options out there on the World Wide Web, so we are honored that you carve out space to spend with us. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, produce, and host this show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton, and our music comes from Frank Mastin, drawn from his incredible discography of library music. You can find more of it over at mastin.bandcamp.com. That's M-A-S-T-O-N.bandcamp.com. Art for this episode was assembled by Ian Everett, and our executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard's founder, Justin Gage. Don't miss his radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU, Channel 35, at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, each and every Wednesday night. This show drops in your podcast feed on Wednesdays, and you can tune into The Aquarium Drunkard Show on Wednesdays. It's a good combo. Transmissions is a part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. Next week on Transmissions, we will have another Jason joining us, Jason Stern, that is, along with Don Fleming, two of my favorite return guests who together manage with Laurie Anderson, the Lou Reed Archive. They're rolling back into the transmission zone to discuss Lou's dedication to Tai Chi uh, and his recently reissued album of meditation music, Hudson River Wind Meditations. Remember that you can support Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions by checking out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon, and you can always find something cool to read or listen to or watch over at Aquarium Drunkard. I hope you will come back and join us. Feel free to spread word of the show. Send this episode to a friend who you think might enjoy that choice Bob Dylan anecdote. Uh, Be well in the meantime. We'll be back next Wednesday with that all new episode for you. And I do hope you will return. Until then, be well. This transmission is concluded.